What's the last donation you made? And how did they convince you to do it? <laughs> the last donation I made was to the Australian wildfires. And that was just a fellow poker player who is Australian. And she said, you know, Australia's burning. Help. So no, no, uh, no con man tactics? Just no. a picture of a koala. Those koalas. That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> Welcome to How To. I'm Charles Duhigg. Let me start by asking you a question. When is the last time you asked someone for money? Maybe you were headed off to college and you hit up a rich uncle for some help with tuition. Was it hard to do that? Like, did you have a hard time asking for the money? Now let me ask you another question. When was the last time you gave someone money? How did you choose to do that? How did you choose one charity over another? It turns out that there's a whole science about how to convince people to hand over their money. And the people who run nonprofits or, or raise money for political candidates or who find investors for startups, they study the science pretty closely. And there's another group of people who, who also study this pretty closely, who, who spend a lot of time thinking about how to get people to open their wallets. Con artists. Con artists are incredibly good at understanding people, at understanding what makes people work. They're very good listeners. This is Maria Konnikova. I'm a writer, journalist, psychologist, and poker player. A few years ago, Maria wrote a book about con artists called The Confidence Game. They actually have a lot of traits that would be incredibly positive if they were put to good ends. And it's not like any of those tools or techniques in and of themselves are conning. Yes, they're part of the con artist's toolbox, yeah. but they're also part of the toolbox of successful business people, successful entrepreneurs, successful fundraisers. And that got us thinking, could anyone use the tools of the con artist? Like, could you go out and use their powers of persuasion, but for good? To find out, we found a full-time fundraiser who works for a very good cause. Meet Shannon. I'm the executive director of Response, which is the domestic violence and sexual assault agency based in Aspen, Colorado. That sounds like a big job and a kind of like emotionally heavy job, I imagine. It can be, definitely. It's also a job that entails raising money to support housing and education and a 24-hour hotline for people, mostly women, who have been the victims of abuse and sexual violence. And although this is a really important issue, Shannon says raising money can be a real challenge. Oftentimes, people don't like to admit that this is a problem in their community. Plus, there's lots of other worthy causes and worthy groups who are also asking for financial support. So when people say, you'll have no problem fundraising, you're in Aspen. Um, yes, we're in Aspen, but so are a lot of other people with a lot of other great causes. So a challenge is, of course, always distinguishing yourself from other nonprofits and convincing people that their money is best spent going to response versus some other nonprofit. This may sound crazy, but our con man expert is confident she can help Shannon with her problem. And when we come back, she'll share a few tips that we can all use to convince people to give us their money. Hopefully for the right reasons. Can I persuade you to stick around? This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change... 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Just last night with my kids, I started watching one of my favorite movies of all time, The Sting, which stars Robert Redford and Paul Newman as these two 1930s Chicago grifters who trick a mob boss out of half a million dollars. It's a nice con, Hickey. I thought you were the feds myself when you came in. No trouble, Henry. Snyder went for it all the way. You should have seen the raggy lid under Monica. <laughs> It turns out the movie was loosely based on the work of this scholar who had studied real-life con men. He was a linguist who wrote this book, The Big Con, back in 1940. Um, And he spent years on the streets with con artists, and he broke down um, kind of some of the terms for how how they did what they did. And I looked at the process psychologically and kind of broke down the steps to figure out, okay, how does this work? How do you rope someone in? How do you get them into your story? What is the con artist actually doing? And I want to go through those steps and, and see if they if they offer anything for Shannon. And yeah. Sort of, sort of using this for good rather than Absolutely. For bad. But let me ask one other question, which is, when you were talking to these con men, was it a job for them or was it like artistry? Like what, like did they enjoy conning people? Yeah, they love it. Really? Why? They love it. Um, I think that for them, they justify it to themselves. So I had, I think my epiphany moment was when I was interviewing uh, this gentleman who had done time in jail. He used to, he was a card shark okay. and he would run crooked games. He had crooked clubs in New York. He took advantage of people all over the world. Um, and at some point I said something about con artists and he says, yes, but I'm not a con artist. And my jaw just kind of dropped. And I said, excuse me. He said, no, no, con artists, you know, they're bad people, blah, blah, blah. I'm a good person. You know, I never took advantage of anyone who didn't need taking advantage of, basically. (laughs) And then you realize they jump through all of these mental hoops to justify what they do to themselves. So let me ask, because Shannon is obviously in a very different place, right? But uh, but we thought it might be... Yes, let's make that clear. Exactly. We're not doing it nefariously. (laughs) So, So Maria, let me ask, I mean, do you think the lessons of the con man can help her think about how to fundraise? Absolutely, absolutely. Especially because there's one con that actually hinges on human desire to do good. So think about, you know, how many times have you been approached by someone in the subway or, you know, at Penn Station saying, excuse me, um, I don't have fare for the bus. I don't have fare for the metro. Can you give me money? Can you give me $2? Can you give me $5? Can you give me $10? What if they really do need to catch the bus to their family in New Jersey? Those types of stories work because people want to do good. Yeah, There's one technique in particular that's incredibly effective called um, the foot in the door technique. The notion behind it is that people are much more likely to do something for you and actually do something potentially big if they've done a small favor first. Oh, interesting. So if they've done something small for you in the past, that means a few things. That means your cause was worthwhile because they already agreed to do something for it. Um, They're good people, um, and they made the right decision back then. So this is our first rule. Start with a small request, just to get your foot in the door. 
It can be something totally insignificant. In fact, it's better if it's something insignificant. So something that it's easy for the person, for, for your mark, to say yes to. And then you can grow the requests from there. This has been around forever. Benjamin Franklin used it, um, and he used it to get people who were his political enemies to become his friends. So when it comes to nonprofits and when it comes to fundraising, I think it could actually be incredibly helpful to start with very small asks that aren't necessarily even for money. Like, do you support nonviolence? Do you support, you know, this kind of thing? Would you sign this? Would you, you know— Give 10 minutes of your time at your child's school to supervise this workshop. Ask for something small that's very easy to give. And then that creates an affinity, which in turn opens up the door. You have your foot in the door, and now you can ask for bigger things, and people will say yes. It's actually, the research on this is crazy. People will say yes to the most insane things, the most insane demands on their time um, that you wouldn't think that they would accept. Simply because they've already given you something small. Yes. So, so what, what you're saying is that, Shannon, if you're if you're going after someone who you know is a multimillionaire, you don't ask them for any money. Instead, you ask them to like do the smallest, easiest thing. Like Exactly. And it makes them feel like a good person. It makes them feel like they're making a positive impact. And it makes them feel like, oh, well, this person didn't hit me up for money yet again. Shannon, what do you think about that? Like, ha- have you tried anything like that? Yeah, I absolutely agree, Maria. And I think that you don't want people to feel like you're always asking them for money. You want them to feel like they are part of your mission. And so one way to do that is to sit down with someone and, and as you said, don't ask them for money, ask them for their advice. Um, and that may develop a relationship that eventually will turn into an ask. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way. The other is um, people are always thinking about how do I expand my donor list? And it's often more productive to look at your existing donor list and say, who gave me $25 and how can I connect them more to the mission at response so that next year they want to give us $50? So I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And we do that a lot. It sounds like you're doing everything right with the foot in the door, but I'm wondering if there's like more opportunity to kind of even even take this to the next level. Maria, let me ask you, is there an example of, how do con men use that, that foot in the door? Like, what's an example of something that someone told you about where they they got a small thing that led to something big? Uh, my favorite story of this um, is actually one that I tracked down in a library because it happened in the 1800s, but it's the original Nigerian print scam. Um, an ad appeared in newspapers all over the country. Um, it was said that there was a Nigerian prince, and this was a letter from him. And he said, you know, I'm all alone basically here in my palace with my jewels, um, and all I want is friends. And people sent him lots of letters. And then he started a correspondence, and he asked for a pair of old pants and $5 and said, you know, in, in exchange, I'll send you jewels because I have no use for them. They're just baubles, but I have heard that in America— these things are valuable. So people sent him pants, and then they sent him money, um, and they didn't get any jewels. And all of a sudden, the U.S. Postal Service smelled something and uh, decided to investigate. And they found out that this was a little kid, 12-year-old named <laughs> Bill Morrison in the U.S., not a Nigerian prince. Oh, my gosh. Um, and he was just very much ahead of his time. Wow. Wow. <laughs> awesome. The reason why the foot in the door actually can be so effective for con artists, and this is This is, I think, a step that a lot of other types of people who have much better intentions often skip, is that con artists understand 
that not every single person is going to fall for the same con. So they know how to tailor their story specifically to you. How do they know that? They are incredible listeners. Here's our next rule. Listen carefully to your potential donor to figure out what they need. Then customize your pitch to solve some problem for them. To, for instance, allow them to see themselves as a hero or or, or to demonstrate how important they are. So step one of the con happens before you ask for anything. It happens before any interaction. It's just a state of observation and of listening and of figuring out what motivates this person. What do they want? So I can see this actually applying to fundraising because some people, it's actually, they want to just give money. They don't want to give their time. For them, their time is actually much more valuable. Maybe this person sees themselves as a humanitarian who's making the world a better place. The con artist's genius is identifying that in each of us because they listen so well and then pitching the story in exactly the right way that we are actually going to give because they've pushed the right buttons. So give me the strategy. Like if if, a con, if you're talking to the mm-hmm. con man and you're yep. asking him about storytelling, yep. how do they think about crafting stories and narratives so, so that it fits and it, and it convinces someone to hand over some cash? Right. So, I mean, the story, first of all, has to be emotionally engaging. Okay. Um, that's crucial. But it has to engage the specific person. So the person you're talking to has to become part of the narrative and has to become part of the story. And so you're not just talking about a story in the abstract. You're saying, oh, you know, where where do your kids go to school or kind of where, like first you, first you find that common ground because that's very important. And then you you start trying to craft the story in a way that's emotional, but that also makes this person part of the story. And so they feel like they actually have something going on with that's that narrative. Interesting. Um, now, it's it's very tricky, though, because you ha- that's why the listening stage is so important beforehand, because that can also backfire. You need to tell the right story to the right person. What are some of these other tactics that you find might sort of help illuminate um, different strategies? Yeah, so we've talked about engaging emotion, but you also have to create a feeling of urgency um, and of scarcity. Okay. Um, The kind of act now, right? NPR actually does this. You have short-term incentives where you know that it's National Public Radio and that, you know, if you donate within the next 10 minutes, we are going to match it with this or we'll provide you with that so that there's actually an incentive to acting quickly. And oftentimes con artists will do that so that you don't have time to change your mind. You know, can we, how do we incentivize that immediately? How do we create that situation where the action for some reason should be taken right away? This is the next rule. Add some urgency. Some kind of time pressure that helps them understand it is really important to donate right now rather than, you know, later when they might just forget about it. Shannon, how have you tried to create sort of that um, pressure to say, okay, like you've heard the spiel, like let's make a decision right now? Well, most recently, um, you know, there's the National Giving Tuesday, but then our board of directors contributed a chunk of money that was a match. So if you would double your gift. So that's a pretty mm-hmm. classic fundraising, um, create some urgency um, technique that we used uh, just last month. 
So it turns out Shannon is already using some of these tools and she didn't even know it. But there's still other tricks that she can try. Maria will give up more of the goods after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. We're back with Shannon and Maria Konnikova, who's got a few more tricks up her sleeve for convincing people to give you their money. So another technique that we can talk about, um, we've talked about the foot in the door. There's the opposite called the door in the face. So how do you feel, Charles, after you've slammed the door in someone's face? Bad. Yeah. And I mean, usually, A, I feel bad, and then B, my wife tells me I'm a jerk. So I feel like Well, there worse. you go. There you go. And, and Shannon, I imagine you don't feel great either, right? You no. Know. So... When someone's just slammed the door in your face, and now we're talking metaphorically, and said no to something, they feel bad. They feel like, I'm not a great person. This great cause um, for something that is, is a good thing asked me for something, and I said no. Like, you just, I even feel bad when I walk down the street and someone is asking me, you know, excuse me, do you have do you have a spare second for the animals? And I don't have a spare second and I walk past and I kind of feel guilty. Yeah. I'm like, but the animals need my help. Like, you feel a little bit like a jerk. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that takes that guilt 
and it actually weaponizes it in your favor. So what you do is you ask for something you know they will say no to. Rather than asking for something small, you ask for something huge. Would you donate one full day of your time to go volunteer in a shelter? You know they're going to say no. Yeah, right. right. Like, I don't want to donate a Saturday a month. I'm no. sorry, I just don't. Um, and that makes me feel bad, right? Even saying that out loud, I'm like, I just sounded like, <laughs> like a not very nice person. And so then, you know, not the same day, but soon after, while they still remember this and while they're still feeling guilty, you ask them for something much smaller. You know, I totally understand that you couldn't donate a Saturday of your month um, to do this. Would you instead be able to give us $25 a month. Or exactly. Yeah. That that would help cover someone's time. Or would you instead, you know, do, come for an hour? But I think actually the money ask after that is very effective. Yeah. Like, can you, you know, but that yeah, would you actually. You can't give your time. How about exactly. your money? And, and they will say yes. And the percentage that will say yes will be much, much higher than if you had just asked them initially. This is the next rule. Oftentimes, when we're asking someone for money, we're focused on tailoring the request to make it easy for them to say yes. But that might be totally the wrong strategy. Sometimes it's better to ask for something that seems impossible because once someone says no, they feel bad about it. And they're therefore more likely to say yes to your next, more modest request. Shannon, have you tried that? Have you have you asked for things that you know people are going to have to say no to? Not in that specific strategic way, I've definitely made asks of people that I thought, you know, financial asks that were a little bit high and have had them come back with a lower response and been okay with that. But I'd be willing to try. Do you think it would work? I think it could. Definitely. Because I feel like there's a lot of people here who are very protective of their time because we live in a beautiful place and people work hard. They want to recreate on the weekends. Um, and it's easier for them to say, OK, well, I would give you, you know, a, a monthly gift of $25 rather than a monthly gift of my time because I'd rather be out skiing. Yep. And I think empirically, there's a lot of evidence that you will get people saying yes and actually giving money at much higher rates than they would if you just ask directly. Um, so there's actually a lot of data on this. So I have a question for the hypothetical con artist. Um, <laughs> say there's a, there's a wealthy person in Aspen I know is in town. Um, I know because I've done research online about them that they have a probable interest in our cause. They have a history of giving to similar nonprofits elsewhere, but I don't know them and nobody on my board knows them. How do I get in the door or the, the up the heated driveway of their Aspen mansion. <laughs> in other words, how do you identify and then get close to the mark? Well, the con artist would actually go one step beyond your research and do a little bit of trying to figure out places where you might bump into them. Um, in order to do the bumping in and say, oh, I recognize you from your photograph in this wonderful magazine where you were profiled for your philanthropic work. Like, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I do this. Now, I'm not suggesting that because I know that that might be a step too far. Although, if you know that this person also loves skiing and is an Aspen for the skiing and will always go to this ski lodge or this mountain, etc., then that's actually not a bad thing you might conceivably run into them. Short of that, I would actually just say exactly what you just told me. You know, hi, you know, I I don't know you, 
but I know your reputation. Um, I, You seem like an incredible human being for all of these things that you've done. My organization does a lot of the same things that you're interested in. And you also don't make a specific ask at that point. Con artists are very good at trying to figure out. They don't ask something of you. They figure out what it is you want, and they actually try to get you to tell them. And only then do they supply the second part of the story. Shannon, give me an example of the last time you you tried to raise money from someone, and it just didn't didn't work as well as you had hoped. Yeah, I had a big fail when I was actually a board president for my kid's preschool. Oh, yeah? And I went to this really wealthy person whose kids went to the preschool. I mean, all the stars were aligned. This guy should have just been on board to give us big chunk of money for a capital campaign and went in, sat down with him, and made a $30,000 ask and just got shut down. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was new enough at that point, this was probably 15 years ago, that that was so appalling to be shut down when I'd had such confidence that I didn't have the wherewithal to say, well, how about this? Or what could I do to change your mind? Or let's talk more about this. I was just flabbergasted, and I think I just you know, sputtered out a thank you and left with zero dollars. <laughs> it was a big learning experience for me. Of, of you, you have to be prepared for them to say no. So that when they slam the door in your face, yeah. you know. So you, you know. have a response. Well, if 30000 is too much, let's talk about what might work for your family. Because it is, it's really a bit nerve-wracking to ask people for large sums of money. Um, I'm comfortable doing it now, having done it for a long time. But when you're starting off, it's really easy to just balk and get the heck out of there if you don't get the answer you're looking for. And what's potentially most interesting about this and most unexpected is how much the tactics of con artists turn out to be all around us when we know how to look for them. Maria, when you were describing the con artists, this mm-hmm. is not the direction we were supposed to go with this call, but I was really struck by how similar that description of a successful con artist is to the description of a successful abuser, if you can use that term. Yeah. Um, the yeah. parallels of someone who is is very charming, they're often a really good listener, they look for what their um, partner victim is looking for, where their weaknesses are, and then they exploit them. Um, and that really struck me as how strong those similarities were. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the quotes that stuck with me um, the longest after I was done with the book um, came from a man named David Sullivan, um, who um, he infiltrated cults to try to get people out of cults. Mm. Um, because, you know, the cult, cult is really kind of the ultimate con. People's lives are taken away. Um, and what he said that just really struck me is, nobody joins a cult. Right. They join an organization to make the world a better place. They join a yoga studio that has, you know, this really lovely outlook on life. Nobody's like, you know what? Today I'm going to join a cult. Hmm. And today I'm going to marry an abuser. Exactly. And so so I think that that's actually that lends a lot of insight into why these things happen. Nobody goes to get conned and says, you know what, today I'm going to get taken advantage of. Uh, Today I'm going to go into an abusive relationships. People think they're doing something good. And that's what con artists take advantage of. That's what abusers take advantage of. (laughs) 
And that's why we should be on guard against con artists of all stripes. But it's still worth learning their tactics, because the same feelings and instincts that make us susceptible to them, in the hands of someone who's trying to do good, like Shannon, they can actually inspire us to donate our time and our support, even our money, to help improve people's lives. You know, people, we're hopeful. We are optimistic. We think that these things are going to turn out well. And that actually, that's wonderful. And I think that that's the good message that came out of the confidence game and out of my work with con artists. And I also think that that's something that you can really bring into fundraising, realizing that people are hopeful and are optimistic and want the world to be better tomorrow than it was yesterday, um, for the most part. And I think that tapping into that is what con artists do well. They take advantage of that. But I think that we can tap into that to make the world actually a better place. So it's almost that con men are using some of the tactics that successful fundraisers have been using for years. So we're not adopting those techniques. They're adopting ours. Thank you to Shannon for being game about exploring this topic with us. We hope that you can use some of these techniques for good. If you want to learn more about Shannon's organization and their work to help victims of sexual assault and domestic violence, go to responsehelps.org. And a huge thank you to Maria Konnikova for sharing her fascinating research and advice. If you liked this, make sure to pick up a copy of her book, The Confidence Game, and look for her new book later this year about how she became a professional poker player named The Biggest Bluff. Also, check out our fellow Slate podcast, The Gist, where Maria joins host Mike Pesca for a regular segment called Is This Bullshit? Do you have a problem that needs solving? Send us a note at howtoatslate.com and we might be able to help. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review and tell a friend. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen is our production assistant and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Special thanks to Asha Saluja and Sung Park. I'm Charles Duhigg. And I am not conning you when I say, thanks for listening. Okay, my friends, let's be real. There are now a lot of daily news podcasts out there, but none of them are like Today Explained from Vox. Every day, the team at Today Explained picks an essential news story that defines our moment. And then Sean Ramasvaram, the host, sits down with some of the world's best journalists, academics, and policymakers to help us understand what's going on. Today Explained isn't just for political junkies. It explains the news, all of the news. Subscribe, if you haven't already, to Today Explained for free right now in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically.